There we go. Good to see all of you. Happy New Year. It, it seems like a long time since I've been up here uh, as, as, as one of the preachers, and I'm really, really glad that we have a great bench of, of preachers like Mike right here. Wave to the crowd, Mike. You know, and Anthony and, and Joel, and we've got a great group of speakers, and it gave me a chance to, to pray and get ready for today. And let me tell you, I'm ready. Okay? And I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today. And we're, we're beginning a brand new series. If you're here for the first time today, I want to welcome you. You get to start at the beginning of the movie, and we're going to be doing a series for several weeks called Wild Goose Chase. And you go, Wild Goose Chase, what, what are we talking about? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the story, the background of uh, the wild goose chase. Uh, in, in the area called, you know, Scotland as we know it, it was uh, considered in the 4th and 5th and 6th century Celtic country. And when Christianity first came over to England, and, you know, we received it from that part of the world. You know, uh, the biblical, following the Bible, New Testament, evangelical Christianity, you know, looking, having Bibles ourselves and being able to read the Bible. It, it came over to that part of the world first. And the Celtic Christians had a name for the Holy Spirit. And guess what that name was? Not wild goose, on God gloss, on God gloss. And that's Celtic for the Holy Spirit or wild goose. And the reason why they called the Holy Spirit a wild goose is because a wild goose is some, something in there that had a certain amount of mystery to it. Uh, it was wild in the sense you couldn't catch one. They would, they would, be, they would be very elusive. Uh, there would be a certain amount of mystery involved in, in the Holy Spirit. And so they felt in their pursuit of their walk with God that we're chasing a wild goose. You can't tame that wild goose. You can't predict what the wild goose is going to do. And so it's just like the Holy Spirit. So guess what? This year, you and I are going on a goose chase. Okay? And we are going to be in pursuit of the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do in our lives. And what this really means, it means an adventure. Because none of us know what tomorrow may bring, right? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You think you know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you don't know for certain. You've got a plan. You say, well, I'm going to get up and go to work, and I'm going to do this. But the moment we involve the Holy Spirit in our lives, guess what happens? You don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know where he's going to lead you. You don't know what's going to happen, and it's exciting, and it's adventurous, right? So that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. But before we talk about that, we've we got to talk about the reality of, of our lives, okay? You guys been to a zoo before, you know? And, and isn't it cool to go to the zoo? Have you ever been to the San Diego Zoo? I mean, what an incredible, I mean, kudos to the San Diego Zoo. You get to see some of the most incredible exotic animals in the San Diego Zoo, don't you? L.A. Zoo, same thing, you know? Got to give it up for the L.A. Zoo. Not like the San Diego Zoo, but it's a, it's a great zoo. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about a zoo, how does zoo life, although we get to see it, how does zoo life compare to life in the wild? Have you ever watched an animal in the wild? And we get the chance, you know, in the foothills here, you get to go up in the foothills a ways up. Have you ever seen wildlife in the wild? Some of you say no, and I don't want to. 
I understand. You wouldn't want to come face to face with a mountain lion. But what's the difference between a mountain lion in the zoo and a mountain lion out there in the wild? What do animals do in the zoo? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, in, they're in captivity. Most of the time they're lying down, right? There are some weird animals that are freaked out and they're going back and forth, back. And you feel sorry for them. You go, man, he's in a cage. And so why are we talking about this? Let me tell you this. In church world, in church world, sometimes what happens in Christianity is church creates a life of captivity. We become zoo animals, right? And everything is predictable. You come to church, you do your thing, you give your contribution, you open your Bible, you're here with your wife or you're with your family and, and Sunday school and the whole thing. Everything's very routine and predictable. It is like being in a cage. And, you know, there's a certain amount of security. Do the animals have to feel afraid of being attacked in the zoo? No, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, and you get free lunch. Everything is predictable. They know at what time the zookeeper is going to be at 6 a.m. and he's going to drop a whole piece of steak in front of me or whatever they eat. They're going to get fed every single day. There's a certain amount of predictability, and it's, but it's boring. And what's happened to many of us in our Christian walk is we've become zoo animals. And you're not really alive. Yes, you're alive, but you're not really alive. Interesting quote from William Wallace, the same, same place as the, the whole idea of on God gloss came from, that area of Scotland, Celtic Christians. Just after that time, William Wallace, and he had this quote. He says, every man dies, but not every man lives. <laughs> you're going to die at some point, aren't you? There's going to be a death certificate. The problem is some of us are going to die before the date is put on that death certificate. Meaning you're alive, but you're not really alive. You're, li you're not thriving. <coughs> and you're not, you're, not, you're not growing. You're not, you're not like just just you know, alive and saying, man, I'm so excited about what tomorrow's gonna bring. You're, you're basically in a cage. And how does that happen? It basically happens like this. We inundate our lives with things that we call responsibilities. Please, thank you. Ted, you're, you're a gentleman and a scholar. When a brother's in need, a friend indeed. Thank you. Our lives are so filled with stuff. We got so much stuff going on, right? And you're not really alive because you're so busy you can't even think. You got, you're, you're, you're. And let me, let me describe what it looks like, okay? Our lives are so inundated with responsibilities that basically what happens is we basically build a cage around our lives. And we have a poor brother named Angel that's inside the cage. How you doing, Angel? You all right in there? See, now, he's so busy, he, he's not even acknowledging that he's here in front of you. And this is what happens to us. 
we create a safe environment for ourselves, but we're basically caged animals because our lives are so filled with responsibilities. We got so much stuff going on that, you know, and all of us have it. I'm, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a minister, preacher, pastor, uh, I, I'm a citizen, and I've got a lot of things going on. I've got work, I've got responsibilities, bills to pay, things to do, you know, but our lives are so inundated. And you guys here, teens, you're in school, right? You got class tomorrow and projects due and, you know, somebody's expecting something from you tomorrow and you got a meeting to have with the, the, the glee club or whatever club you're a part of. But the truth of the matter is we're basically in a cage here in our hearts. We're not alive. We're not wild. We're not living an adventure. We're not free. We're inundated. And so I want to invite you in these next six weeks, I want to invite you to join me on an adventure. To join us an adventure on a goose chase. And we're going to look at six different stories in the Bible of how God called ordinary people, some of them living in civilized situations in a cage, inundated with their things to do, and, and God tapped them on the shoulder and sometimes people couldn't even hear what God was saying because they just passed it by. God was calling them. God was moving them. God was trying to get them out of the cage. But they said, no, I prefer living here. Just like our poor brother, Angel. He doesn't even know he's in a cage because he's so immersed in his stuff and what's going on in his, in his life. You know, the, this whole idea of responsibilities, you know, you, reminds of us an example in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus encountered a follower, a guy who wanted to follow Jesus. And look, look at what he says, Luke chapter 9, verse 59. It says, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And I know some of us have read this passage before, but when you read it, you go, hmm, man, that's kind of hard, Jesus, isn't it? Don't you empathize? Don't you sympathize with the guy? I mean, come on, his dad has died or, or, or something's happened. And scholars say this. There's different takes on this passage, what scholars say, biblical scholars. Some say that this man, was, his father wasn't dead yet, but he was taking care of him until he died. And so it was kind of a, a, a time frame that he didn't know. And some scholars say the real motivation, the real motivation behind this guy is that he didn't really want to take care of his father. He wanted to stay with his father until his father died so he could get the inheritance. Because if you leave before your father dies, guess what you lose? You lose the inheritance. In any case, Here's what's happening. And when you find yourself, when you're reading the scriptures and you find yourself empathizing with somebody else versus taking Jesus' side, what makes you feel like that? You know what I mean? Because you can look at this guy and you go, man, Jesus, kind of hard. I, 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 I empathize, I sympathize with this guy. Isn't that kind of extreme? I mean, it's the responsible thing to do to take care of your parents, isn't it? I mean, they're elderly people. They need someone to take care of them. Jesus, how, what, what's wrong with this? 
There's nothing wrong. In fact, it's biblical. You know, there's a commandment in the Old Testament that Moses gave to the people of Israel. And you know what that commandment said? Honor your father and mother. I believe it's number four on the list. So Jesus, I'm being responsible here. I'm even being biblical by taking care and honoring my father. And anytime you empathize with somebody versus Jesus, you got to watch out. Because Jesus always is going deeper. He's always going deeper with the situation. And maybe he's going deeper with you because this guy is doing the exact same thing that you and I do. You know what we do? We take our responsibilities, and today we're going to be looking at the cage of responsibilities. Here it is. These things put you in a cage. And we take our responsibilities and we use our responsibilities as an excuse not to do what? Not to follow and put first the kingdom of God. See, first, let me take care of my dad. Why can't you do both? Why can't you reorganize your priorities? Can't you seek first the kingdom and then take care of your father? I am sure Jesus is not going to want to contradict contradict, contradict a, a, a previous existing commandment, but he's dealing with his heart. And what is the issue? He's using his, he's using his responsibilities as an excuse. And I do it, guess who else does it? You do it. And we say, you know what? Hey, Angel, Angel, can, can you help me with the lesson right now? Can't? Why? What, what, what are you doing? Checking your status on Facebook. <laughs> guess that's important. You should do it. Your reputation, you know, your job and things like that, right? But you do that, don't you? When God nudges you and he moves you and he's trying to say, hey, I want to use you. You know what you say? Mm, I can't, I'm busy. And it's, it's noble stuff. It's important stuff. We've all got it, right? I'm busy. We're busy people. But the truth of the matter is we miss out on the adventure and we incarcerate ourselves in this cage of responsibility. So I want to invite you to set yourself free. Today we're going to look at an example in the scriptures, an incredible example, and it's Nehemiah. And, and I want to encourage you before we begin, it, it, it's in Nehemiah, it, it's right before the, the book of Psalms, incredible story about Nehemiah. And, you know, we're not following stories in the Bible that are once upon a time stories. Let me tell you how, how specific this is. Give you the background of Nehemiah. Before Nehemiah, king in, in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar invaded with his army the land of Israel and Judea and basically took over that whole area and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, its wall, its temple, and everything. How do we know this? Not only does the Bible say it, but there is archaeological proof of this thing happening, that there was a King Nebuchadnezzar. They have done excavations, archaeological excavations in Babylon, in Iraq, what we would call Iraq today. They have excavated and found, you know, 
archaeological facts of writings or historical artifacts that describe, yes, Nebuchadnezzar did exist, and he was the king, and Babylon was the most powerful city and kingdom on the planet at that time. And they, they can coincide. And so I just want to encourage you, we're not following once upon a time stories when we follow the scriptures. We're following history. And so I want to encourage you this year, I don't know what your plan is, but if you're going to go on this goose chase with us, and if you're a guest here today, I want to invite you to listen to God's word, what he wants to say to you, to credible examples, people that existed, not, you know, you know, Prince Charming and these kinds of things. We're talking about people, times, places where God worked and did incredible things. And so 586, King Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah, destroys Jerusalem, the wall, the temple, and then in 536 B.C., BC Zerubbabel returns to the, the, the city of Jerusalem. He takes back with him 43,000 captives. They basically, the first time around when Nebuchadnezzar went through, he took hundreds of thousands of Jews out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, out of Israel. Took them all back to Babylon so they could be servants of his. And so the first guy to go back and start this rebuilding process was Zerubbabel. And then in, in 458 B.C., Ezra returns. He brings another wave of captives that are allowed to go back to Jerusalem and begin an incredible project of rebuilding the temple of God. And he takes back with him 18,000 captives back to Jerusalem. So during this time frame here, there's a rebuilding that's going on. And God promised it. This is what's going to happen. So we're going to pick it up in 445 B.C., and that's when Nehemiah comes onto the scene. And where we pick it up in Nehemiah, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. And if you didn't bring your Bible, I want to encourage you to get one. Ask somebody. I know one of our members will give you one. I'll give you one. Come and see me afterwards. I'll get you a Bible. It's so important that this year we begin. And if you don't have a lot of background with the Bible, I want to invite you to start reading the Gospel of John. It's awesome. It will change everything in your life. And we pick it up in 445, Nehemiah enters the scene. And let me just tell you about the state of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is destroyed. It's rubble. And what that means to us, I want you to imagine a wall around a city was its first and last line of defense. When you go home and you close all the doors and windows, do you feel safe at night? Probably, right? Now, what if we took away the doors and the windows and replaced them with plastic or with sheets? And you went to bed at night with basically sheets or with plastic covering your windows and doors. And maybe the whole side of your house is missing and we just got plastic. Would you feel safe then? I mean, it's your line of defense, your doors, your windows, your walls. That's what Jerusalem was like. It was an exposed city. They felt incredibly, you know, vulnerable. And so we pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1. We read together this incredible story. 
jumped ahead. All right, ready? Here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 1. In the month of Kislev. Now, Kislev, what that month means is November, December. Okay, that's the time frame we're talking about. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. I'm going to have to use this too. And in verse 2, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself, my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen and dwell, a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. And we hear this is Nehemiah's prayer. Now I want you to understand something. What Nehemiah was born in captivity in Babylon. He'd never visited Jerusalem. He'd only heard about it. He was a generation after captivity. So all he knew and all he understood was Babylon. And he heard rumors about this place, this incredible place, the city of God, Zion, in its greatness. But when he heard about the condition, he broke down and he wept and he fasted and he cried out to God and he praised this incredible prayer. And he knew why what happened happened. He said, the reason why Jerusalem is in the state it's in is because you predicted it, God. If we don't follow you and we're not faithful to you, this is what will happen. But he recalls the promise of God. He says, God, you promised. You promised that if we turn back to you, you'll bring us back. So I'm asking you, God, to make good on your promise. And then he says this. He says, give your servant, in other words, me, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence 
of this man. Success at what? Let me give you the cliff notes. Nehemiah was asking, was going to ask the king, Artaxerxes, the most powerful king in the world at this time, for permission to go back and lead the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its wall. It was a bold request. And what is his occupation at this time? What is his cage of responsibility? He's a cupbearer, right? Now, what does leading and rebuilding a city have to do with cupbearing? You know, I mean, being a cupbearer, what's your qualification? What's your job description? You've got to be a pretty happy guy. Hey, king, here's a drink. It's good. I'm alive. It's not poison. Have a drink. Right? And, you know, sometimes he could be an advisor to the king because he's always with the king. He's right there, probably food tester, uh, cup bearer. You know, he was the guy that if the king was going to get poisoned, he would drop and say, oh, guess the food's poison. So he was the detector. So what was his job? It's a cup bearer, wine taster, food taster, happy guy. What a great job. Would you want that job? I want that job. It's a little dangerous, right? But nobody's going to poison the food when they know they've got a, a guy who's going to taste it first. They're not going to poison it, so you're pretty safe. You get the best of the best. Isn't that awesome? But he's asking the king, give me, give me favor because I'm going to step outside the cage. Hey, angel, do you want to come out of the cage? Do you guys want Angel to come out of the cage? Come on out of the cage. Come on. Over here, over here. Let me, let me get you out of the cage. Hand for our brother here. He's free. He's free. And he does have a very busy life. Each week we're going to have a different person in here, so if you want to be in the cage. We're going to talk about different cages, but back to Nehemiah here, guys. This, this, is, so, this is so incredible. And, and let me tell you this, how the wild goose moves is he moves in people's hearts to put a desire in their heart to do something for God. And in his case, he was going to ask the king for permission to lead this rebuilding project. He was on a wild goose chase led by God. And everything starts, everything starts with a single-celled desire. You know what this is like, right? Probably over the holidays, if you got a new phone, you had a single-celled desire. Mm, I want a new phone. I want a new TV, right? And you got the single-celled desire, and it's powerful. And you get online and you start shopping, you know, and you're checking deals and who's got this or whatever it is, whatever your deal. Maybe it's a car. And that's a strong desire. You know, but everything starts with a single desire, but there is one desire that's deeper and more powerful than any other desire, and that is a purpose-driven desire ordained by God. When you feel this calling, when you're going, wow, God, you're calling me to do something. And it's so powerful, I'm scared. 
Tell, let me tell you, Nehemiah was scared. Now let me ask you this question. Is he qualified? You think he's qualified? Cupbearer, governor of Jerusalem? What do they have in common? I mean, he's going to have great parties, right? He's going to have the best food, the best drink. But is he really qualified? See, when, when the wild goose starts calling you, you can go through your list of qualifications and say, I'm not qualified for this job. I'm not qualified for this. And again, you're using that as what? As an excuse not to move forward. And Nehemiah, you could say, yes, he's probably qualified for, for this. It was pretty much outside of what he was normal to. And let me tell you this. When God puts a passion, a passion on your heart, you need to take responsibility for it. You don't need to brush it off on that. You let it pass by. God is knocking on your door. He is, he's got signs, you know, the road signs and things are going on in your life. He's trying to get your attention. Hey, I want to use you. Hey, I want to do something with your life. I want to take you from here to here. When he puts that passion on your heart, you need to take responsibility for it. You need to embrace it. I can remember in college when I was a young man, 21 years old, God put a passion. I don't know where and why and what. He put a passion in my heart to help people. And I went to a conference about Latin American missions, and I was like, this is incredible. I'm from Latin America. I've always wanted to go there and live and work. Now I'm in your kingdom, and, and you're calling me, and I had a vision. I had a very clear, passionate vision, clear vision. I was speaking in front of thousands of people in Latin America in a language that I couldn't even speak. Well, and I, I just, I saw it, and I go, this is scary. Because this gonna have, means I'm going to have to leave my culture. It took five years for this to happen, but it was undeniable. I couldn't run from it, couldn't avoid it. And let me tell you, when God moves in you, and I'm just like everybody else, and I believe the Holy Spirit wants to use you for something special, and this is your year. So we'll read on with the story. Nehemiah chapter 2, we ch jump into chapter 2. We're not going to read the whole book, so don't worry. Okay, just chapter 1 and a few verses of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, <clears throat> what are we talking about here? Nisan is March, April, spring, okay? That was their name for spring months. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Why had he not been sad in the presence of the king before? Because that's a don't. You don't go before the king sad. Why? Because you've got to be a happy person when you're with the king. Well, I don't feel happy. Well, you better get happy. And look how serious it is. He'd not been sad before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. You know why he was afraid? He could have been put in prison for this. That's not a game. 
He was, he was taking a step out, being sad in front of the king, not hiding his feelings. He was being vulnerable. He was taking a step of faith. I'm going to disclose my heart feeling, what, what's going on in my life. I'm going to expose it before the king because he has the power to make this happen. And he's very much afraid because he could have been put in prison, could have lost his job, he could have lost everything. And here's the cool thing. He was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? How can I not be sad? This is God's city. How can I not be sad? I am, I am ripped apart about this. This is, makes me, I wept for a few days over this. How can I not be sad? The king said to me, what is it you want? Now, this is huge. The most powerful king in the world at this time. He had conquered everybody. And with his finger, he could move mountains. He could move armies. He could change things around and change countries and their borders and everything else. He had so much power at his disposal. I mean, what would it be like to have the king of the world at that time, the most powerful? I mean, let, let's just say President Obama, if he were king. He's not king, he's president. But let's say he's king. And you get to go and sit before him, and he asks you, what do you want? Let me just ask you today. Do you know the answer to that question? If I were to ask you today, what is it? What do you want? I want a million dollars. Wrong answer. You know why? Okay, you got a million dollars. Then what? How's your life going to? Well, I'm going to help the poor. Okay, great, but what about you? What would you want? And that, that's something you've got to ask this year starting out. What is it that you want? What are you after? What's your God-given, ordained desire that he has put on your heart, on your mind, just burning? What is it that you want to do? How do you want your life to count? What do you want it to do? And then the most powerful person asks you, what do you want? Oh, and this is a great response. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Man, when you, got, when you got the king's attention and he's asking you, don't just blurt out an answer. Pray about it. Because you got the opportunity now to do something big here. You've got God's attention. You've got the king's attention. This is huge. And the king answered, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me, not somebody else, send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Here it is. You know what his single cell desire is? Rebuild the city. My whole existence, my whole reason for being on this planet is that God has called me to rebuild this city in 445 B.C. So, man, that's a big head. No, that's, that's somebody who understands life. And too many of us live in significant lives 
where we're living in this cage and we have no idea of what God wants to do with us. And we're encaged. We're zoo animals. You lay around, you got lunch coming at 12, right? Who's going to give it to you? Well, Chipotle is probably going to give it to the teens and there's going to be chicken soup for some of you and, you know, and salad because, you know, you started this whole thing uh, this year and you're going to have chicken salad and you're going to be a good boy, you know, be a good girl and you're going to do, okay, but you got it coming, right? And tomorrow you got your work schedule and, you know, it's just going to, and you're going to move along. What is this in your life? 2015, what is that? I'm going to rebuild this city. What are you going to do? And if you don't know, this is huge. This is huge. Most of us don't get what we want because we don't know what we want. We don't know. What is it you want? What do you want? What are you really after? What's your God-ordained passion? And this is a big question. Do you really know what you want? Because it changes, you know. Well, today I want. Tomorrow, who knows? No, 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 no. Life. Life. Why are you here? This is a huge question. And if you don't know the answer to this question, I want to encourage you to spend a few days thinking about it, praying about it. Because this means you are about, you are on the, 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 you are on the threshold of a wild goose chase where God could reveal something really important in your life. How do you identify those God-given passions? How do you identify it? This is a huge question I'm talking about. This is a really big way to start the year out, isn't it? How do you identify it? How do you know if they're from God? Really? Break it down for you this way. How do you know what, what is a God, God-given, God-ordained? It, it, it's something like this. And, and it's so important that we act on it. But what, what is it that makes you cry? What is it that makes you cry? You know, Nehemiah wept over the state of Jerusalem. That's a signal. That's, a, that's like, okay, ding. That may be it. What makes you cry? What makes you sad? What makes you mad? I'm talking mad to the point where it makes you so upset you pound the table. I'm so upset about this. I am so moved by this. It disturbs me that this is happening in the world. It disturbs me that it's happening in the community. It makes you sad. It makes you mad. Or it makes you smile really big. You know what I mean? I mean, it just moves you. I mean, it just puts a smile so big on you. You're like, yes, this is my calling. This is what God has called me to do. So it breaks down, how do you identify those God-given passions? What makes you sad? What makes you mad? And what makes you really glad? That's a good starting point to know what that God-given desire is. Anybody know who this lady is? Just a lady, right? This lady, and this is how it works. This lady is Candy Leitner. She is the founder of an organization called MAD. How many of you know what MAD is? Okay, what, what's the definition of MAD? You guys have high school students, you know exactly what MAD is. 
Mothers Against Drunk Driving. She's the founder. Let me, let me tell you the story about this woman, Candy Leitner. Okay, when Candy Leitner's daughter, Serena, was 18 months old, Leitner's car was hit from the rear by a drunk driver causing a slight injury to Serena. Six years later, her son, Travis, was run over and very seriously injured. He suffered numerous broken bones and other injuries and was in a coma and received permanent brain damage by an unlicensed driver who was impaired by tranquilizers when she, inj when she injured him. In spite of her illegal behavior and the permanent consequences, she received no ticket. On May 3rd of 1980, Candy Leitner's 13-year-old daughter, this incident number three, her 13-year-old daughter, Carrie, was walking in a residential neighborhood in Fair Oaks, California, on, where on her way to a church carnival, she was struck from behind by a drunk driver who briefly passed out and came to and drove off after killing her young 13-year-old daughter, Carly. Threw her 125 feet. She's dead on an instant. Candy Leitner started mad in her den May 7th, 1980, four days after the tragedy and a day after Carrie's funeral. That's when she discovered that the offender who had been caught would probably not receive any time in jail, much less any time in prison for his crime. I promised myself on the day of Carrie's death that I would fight to make this needless homicide count for something positive in the years ahead. Candy Leitner later wrote, how did her God-given passion start? It started with a tragedy. How does it start for some people? It's different. Where do you do this? For some of you, it's going to take you getting outside of your normal cage of responsibility and routine. you got to get out. And you got to let things move you. Some of you are going to need to go on a mission trip. A week from today, we're going to have a guest speaker at the evening service. He's going to share about these medical brigades that they're doing in Central America. And if you'd like to come to the evening service on top of, you can. And you, his name is Walter Kukowski, and he's going to share about the incredible opportunities. Walter Kukowski is like Candy Leitner. He works for Hope Worldwide, but his passion, his God-given desire is a program called ELS, English, English Language, English as a Second Language, ESL. And he's going to these countries and setting up teaching programs where they can teach children on how to learn and families how to learn English. Do you know that it, it, it multiplies their family income by five when they learn English as a second language? It basically takes them out of poverty. I mean, it's incredible. And he takes groups of 40 people, and these people come back, and they're doctors, nurses, they get to do all this stuff, they help people in these poor communities. I'm, and I described to you about what would it look like your house being a sheet or a piece of plastic. That's literally these people's houses in Central America. That's how they live. But imagine being able to teach them language and then take them out of that situation. Some, some of you are gonna have to experience something, but to get outside of your normal situation. And it's not just about you discovering it, but God revealing it. This is so important. This is so important because 
You want to discover it. You're so bent on discovering it, and you're like saying, God, I want you to reveal it. Show me what it is you want to do. Reveal it to me. Look at this, this psalm. Psalm 37 and verse 4. And this is how God reveals it. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So there's an order to this, how this works. How is God going to put it on my heart, this God-ordained passion of what I'm here for? Something that I could do that leaves my mark on this, this planet. And, and it's basically here, take delight in the Lord, meaning put God first in your life. Reorder your responsibilities because you have some, right? You have a lot of them. But what's first on the list? Is God first on the list? I mean, some of you, you don't have time for God. You're so busy. You get up in the morning and shoom, you don't, no, no time for prayer, no time for Bible study. I want to encourage you to rearrange. Take delight in the Lord. And then it says here, he will give you. This word give means to conceive. I mean, give birth to. For our vernacular 2015, you know what this word means? Download. If you put God first, he will download your God-given desire. He will, he'll put it on your hard drive. But you may never get it if you don't put God first. You'll miss it. And what a tragedy. And here's something that, that even if you succeed, if you succeed at the wrong thing, guess what? You failed. And we see people all the time that do this, right? They're at the top. They've been successful. They're incredibly successful. They're wealthy. They've made it to the top. Are they happy? Are they, are they in the lane? Are they in the zone? No, they're not. They're extremely unhappy because they're successful at the wrong thing. That's not their calling. It's not what they were called for. Stephen Covey said it this way. He says, uh, he says if, if you climb the ladder of success and realize it's leaned against the wrong wall, you failed. I mean, what would it like to climb the ladder of success and you're climbing the wrong ladder or your ladder's against the wrong wall? Nehemiah said this, my life existence and my ladder is not here in Babylon. It's leaned up against the wall of Jerusalem and I'm climbing that ladder. What's your ladder leaning up against? Beware of this. Confusing selfish desires versus God's desire for your life. This is huge. I'm the, probably the worst culprit at this. My wife knows this. I can, I can weave God's desire and my desire all together so they're knitted perfectly. And you go, man, this is so spiritual. God's all around this. But you know what, really, and I have to be honest, this is me. This is what I want. It's not what God wants. And we've experienced a lot of, you know, painful, wrong moves because I did this. So I want you to beware. Pray about this. This is, this is your year. You know, someday is today for you. Now people say, well, someday when I grow up, I'm going to do this. Today's your someday. And I want you to walk down this road. I want you to ask God, God, please, I want to go on a goose chase. I want your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, will you show me, will you reveal to me 
what it is you want me to do? What's my place? And the wild goose, here's saying, the wild goose will show up in the wildest places and in the wildest times. It's very unpredictable. You you don't know where he's going to show up, where the Holy Spirit's just going to move you, knock you over, back of your head. And here's the thing. You don't know who you're going to meet, and you don't know where you're going to end up. And for some of you, that scares you to death. But for some of you, that excites you. And you should be excited because it's adventure in its purest form. Here's something else we got to be careful of, and then we're going to wrap it up. And they went out and preached, and this is the apostles after Jesus has died and resurrected. He, they're on their way, the, 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 the 12 apostles, they're out there, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirming the word by the signs that what? Followed. Guess what we want? We want the signs first. No, they went out and guess what? Followed. The signs followed. But we want God to make a, give us a sign. Give me a sign now, then I'll go. No, they went and the signs followed. And see, here's the reality. We spend our time waiting for God, and God's waiting for us to do what? To get out of your cage, get off your fanny, and start walking, start praying, start, start weighing in on that, that God-given desire. I mean, God's been waiting for you to do this, and it's exciting. Anybody know who this is? No idea. I wouldn't know either. This is Agnes Gongsa Bohaksiu. Agnes Gongsa Bohaksiu felt called to ministry as a young girl and went through her ministerial training in Ireland and India. When she graduated from her training, her heart was on fire with a burning passion to serve God and love people. One day she approached her superiors and announced, I have three pennies. and a dream from God to build an orphanage. Her superiors could not believe what they were hearing. After laughing at her, they said, you can't build an orphanage with three pennies. With three pennies, you can't do anything. Agnes just smiled and replayed, I know, I know. But with God, three pennies can do anything. For 50 years, this woman worked among the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. We know Agnes Gongsia Bohaksiu as Mother Teresa, who endeared herself to thousands of people. She literally gave her life away in sacrifice of love to others. Mother Teresa did not have the, the material things that many have today, but she had a passion which she gave her life, which gave her life meaning and direction. The impact of her love and kindness impacted millions of people around the world. You know, when Mother Teresa got old, people would walk up to her, Mother Teresa, tell me, I got a question. How can my life be so impactful like your life? She got asked this thousands of times by so many people. They wanted to be like Mother Teresa. And she had one answer to everybody. 
how can my life be like your life? And she said, you need to find your Calcutta. You need to find your Calcutta. In other words, what makes you sad? What makes you mad? What makes you glad? You need to find your Calcutta. So that is what we're going to be after in these next few weeks in this series, but also this year. And I want to encourage you to embark on a new year. You know, when I'm 51 years old, and I've decided when I grow up, I want to do something significant with my life. And I've got some big dreams of what I want to see God do. They say, well, you're older. You've already done a lot. Yeah, but there's so much more. I've got a lot of growing up to do. And so I want to invite you on this journey to go on a wild goose chase and to ask the Holy Spirit and to begin a new priority system. And there's so many stories of people like this out there. And so right now we're going to pray for the communion. We're going to end this service. And I want to invite you to, for this to be your first communion of the year. I know you took communion last year, but this can be a year where you can throw off the past and you can start fresh and begin your quest asking God, what is that one thing you want to do with my life? That passion, that goal. Let's pray for the communion. Our Father God in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to pray to you. God, we honor and lift up the name of Jesus right now. We lift up his body and his blood. Thank you that he died. He gave his body, his blood. He was hung on a cross so that we could have this opportunity right now to remember him, to be forgiven of all of our, our mistakes, our, our, our pains that we've caused you and we've caused people around us. Father, wash us in the blood of Jesus. Help us to rededicate ourselves today, right now. Father, so that we can be like Nehemiah, so that we can be like the apostles, so that we can be like so many people, Father, God-ordained servants of yours, used by you to change a community. Father, please use us and help us. Forgive us. Cleanse us. We thank you and we honor and remember the blood and body of Jesus right now. In Jesus' name we pray.